Today is Tuesday, November 1st, 2016, and this is episode 175 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me today, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Well, almost always. Well, except for that one time. (laughs) And we are actually recording in lovely New York City. That's right. And uh, we can almost see Central Park from Jerry's hotel room. some trees, yeah. Yeah. Through a little sliver between two two buildings, but we're here for the uh, inaugural uh, O'Reilly Security uh, Conference, which is uh, pretty cool so far, and uh, focused on enterprise defense, which is right up our alley for the show. So we came up to hang out and be a part of the show and see some good talks. Indeed, we uh, last night we hosted the Ignite talks, which I thought went phenomenally well. I mean, we're biased. Because we hosted. That, that's true. <laughs> no, but it was it was a great time. And I, I don't think it got filmed, unfortunately. So I don't think there's any actual uh, record of it. But it, it was. if you've never done an Ignite talk, by the way, it's, it's really fun. It's basically you submit 20 slides and you have five minutes and the slides auto advance every 15 seconds. So it can get a little hairy, but it was good times. I think everybody enjoyed and... Uh, we also had a little bit of extra time, so we put together something called Slide Karaoke, where Jerry and I, very evilly and maliciously, you might say, went and found a bunch of just random, absurd slides from real presentations out in the world, uh, put them together, and then got five volunteers who had basically five slides they've never even seen before, and they've got to talk to them like it's their presentation and just figure their way through it. So it was good, good improv fun. Yeah, and uh, I have to say everybody that participated did just a phenomenal job. Yeah, so. absolutely. And we met some fans of the show, which was great. We always love that. There's been a, a number of folks who have uh, come up and said hello and mentioned that they're fans of the show. And uh, for all those that, that are here who, who haven't said hello to us, uh, you probably won't hear this before you leave. But in general, never never be shy. We're, we're, we're probably as socially awkward or more so than you guys are. So That's certainly true. <laughs> certainly true. So, um, so yeah, we're going to – I think we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we've seen so far at the conference. But also we do have a couple of stories to – to talk about. But uh, before we do that, I do want to remind everyone that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. It's true. Poor Jerry's been on the road so much. I had to come to New York City to record a show. <laughs> yeah. Well, desperate times, des- desperate measures and all that. So um, so anyhow, we'll, let's uh, let's do some quick stories and then we'll we'll talk about the show. Okay. So the first story we have for today comes from bankinfosecurity.com, and the title is Online and is Ad Industry Threatened by Security Issues. This is a, you know, for longtime listeners of the show, not a, I think, not a particularly new issue. However, what's, what's changing is potentially some of the, the regulatory landscape. So the story here is that 
um, is you hopefully are, are aware online and online ads are a a very common method of distributing malware and uh, and exploiting computers and uh, there's been just probably too many um, major incidents to note like I mean I can recall dozens of high profile sites from nbc.com to uh, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations and actually I think CFR wasn't a wasn't a banner ad but whatever yeah I go to that site I mean daily don't you well think about the people who do I mean when I was single I was kept looking for dating tips for dating yeah. women for, it never alright okay. so um, yeah moving on um, anyhow the, the the point here is that you know, this is a, a, a really troubling area and there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of protection from the, the side of the ad networks, right? I think they do to varying degrees, depending on which ad network you're, you're talking about. They do some amount of due diligence to make sure that the ads are, are cleaned up, but they point out that even Google who runs arguably one of the more clean ad campaigns back in 2014, you know, ejected something like almost a half a million ads for, for being, Malicious, so it's it's a really like malicious links, obviously. Clearly, clearly, you've been you've been waiting five years to make that joke. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the the challenge is that when you go to a website, you really don't have any any way to to see the provenance of an ad, right? It just shows up, and and it only takes once if your system is vulnerable to whatever it's going to try to to exploit. And the tough part is this is, you know, advice we've given people over the years is go to well-known safe sites. Right. Right. Don't go to, you know, Bob's budget downloader site, you know. Right. <laughs> and and this completely subverts that advice. It's it's It takes the reputation of the website and uses it against users. Exactly. And I remember back, you know, decades ago, the advice was, you know, porn sites and where sites were the dangerous parts of uh, of the uh, you know the internet but now it's again it is the the, the otherwise legitimate sites like nbc.com and and many many I don't want to pick on them too much right but no. it's uh, many 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 legitimate otherwise legitimate websites are falling victim to this issue and for those who've never looked into it just very very quick background what you have is is in essence portions of the website are sold to ad networks and the, the website, if we'll keep picking on NBC.com, they have no idea necessarily what's being shown up in that particular portion of the web page. It's coming from another server off the ad network, and then the, the bad guys are going to the ad networks, and they're basically buying ads. But what they're doing is they're, they're serving up malicious code in those ads. So, so the advertisement, in essence, can run things like Flash and, and, and Java and other stuff to actually be used to attack visitors to that website and and even though the attack isn't coming from nbc.com it's it's you know a redirect from that web page to the ad network uh but it not only hurts the end user it also hurts that website that was in good faith working with a with an ad company uh, an ad network uh that the bad guys were were able to basically hire out to serve their malware yeah so the the obvious solution 
is to run ad blockers and and things like uh, no script and 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 that sort of thing. But, but that's of course causing its own set right. Of... But, but the problem is that, that kind of breaks one of the fundamental models that the internet has adopted, which is you know ad supported content. And right. when you take that away, now you know NBC.com and 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 others have a hard time making ends meet. Not that we should necessarily feel bad for NBC.com, but there are many other examples of websites which are solely funded by their ads. Yeah, there's a whole culture war going on right now over this. I mean, I I won't dare to get on the internet without an ad blocker these days. But there's now sites out there that say, hey, you're running an ad blocker, and they go everything from guilt-tripping me into whitelisting their webpage to outright not letting me in. Like Forbes.com. Yeah, Forbes is the notable uh, example. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'm okay with not browsing that site. Yeah, I I have – I've gotten there too. I mean, I I just – I look at it this way. Until you can assure me that the ads you're serving me are not malware, that's your business problem. And and I'm sorry, but I'm not going to browse your site without some protection. I I wonder – We'll we'll almost certainly never figure this out, right? But I wonder what kind of uh, impact to Forbes that has, right? Are they are they suffering at all? You know, and is it is it materializing as a you know a, a hindrance to their business? I don't know. I think like most things, this is probably a niche problem. Probably, I, you know, probably ten percent of of you know whatever, uh, roughly ten percent are. Security nerds like us who know enough to run an ad blocker. Right. Although I have seen some corporate organizations do corporate-wide ad blocking. Yeah. Which not only saves you in massive bandwidth, but also blocks a whole lot of malware. So that's where I think you might start to see actual impact. Uh, but anyway, but back to back to the story itself. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the – I think there's – there's in the article, there's a kind of a tenuous – link between some looming regulations, uh, particularly the FTC, which is, is really starting to clamp down on uh, organizations for, that, that are not doing enough to protect their, their customers. I, I'm not aware, and the, the article doesn't mention anything, but I'm not aware of any ad-related, ad-network-related actions taken by the FTC, but I, I have to imagine that's only a matter of time. And, you know, we, we've talked about in the past that the FTC has a wide and, and very nebulous uh, uh, set of perceived authorities. And so it's it, it does seem like it's only a matter of time. And, you know, I, I do wonder, they actually mentioned the, the GDPR, the, the European Data Protection Directive that's coming up, where potentially if you were to lose, uh, you know, lose the personal data of European citizens as an organization, you could be sanctioned 4% or fined 4% of your, your global annual revenue, which for a lot of companies is, you know, probably not existential, but it's certainly going to, it's certainly going to hurt. But yeah, you don't want to find to put a company out of business. Right. But the problem I think is who do you find? Right? Is it the is it the company because it's it's almost certainly not going to be the ad network that is losing the data. You right? should 
probably find the the routing company that passed the packets to you. The ISP. Yes, I think. <laughs> the ISP, yes. Yeah, I think. <laughs> no, Cisco. not even ISP. I mean the actual routing manufacturer. Yeah. Oh, Cisco, like Cisco. Juniper. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. you know, maybe whoever uh, Vince Cerf. You know, I think he he should. Who, who makes the Who makes a Cat Five or Cat Six? You know the. <laughs> oh, the IEEE standard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we right. could, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know what? what's kind of interesting about this article, too, is so the ad industry, digital ad industry, is actually starting to try to clean up their act as well. And they mentioned uh, in this article that the, the, the sort of the industry group for this, the Trustworthy Accountability Group, or TAG, because, you know, it's catchy, uh, they released their first ever set of guidelines for how ad companies can scan their content uh, to ensure they're not distributing malware. So it's voluntary, but it's the first time we've ever seen the ad industry kind of try to come out with some sort of best practices, uh, which could be, uh, you know, in reaction to, hey, we better regulate ourselves before before the government comes in and regulates us, but maybe it'll help. Yeah, we'll see. I'm personally kind of skeptical. Yeah, I... You know, it's an arms race right now, and I think I think the bad guys are really smart about uh, leveraging the ad networks, and I think they probably still have a bunch of, of tricks up their sleeves if the ad networks start getting smarter about stopping them. So I don't see this being a safe zone for a long time unless they went to a very, very dumb static content that couldn't inject any sort of code. Uh, I think that's that's one of the few options they they could go with that would truly assure it. But that also reduces their capability, reduces their tracking, their targeting, all the sort of um, you know value add that the ad network provides would all go away. Yeah, and unfortunately, like it or or hate it, you know the I think it's it's becoming relatively well accepted. I, I'm not going to say proven, right? That that video ads are are where it's at and you lose that you lose a lot of that capability. So I, I don't know I don't know where it ends. I do think that we're we're kind of at odds. Um, HTML5 will fix all of this, no problem. Cl- clearly. Clearly there's not going to be any in, any similar problems in HTML5. No. 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 All right, so moving on to our next story, which comes from securityweek.com, and the title here is Shadow Brokers Leaks Servers Allegedly Hacked by NSA. So the just a, by way of a bit of background, back I think in August, if I recall, this, this group called Shadow Brokers uh, mysteriously posted online a, 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 a diatribe, which included alleged, what alleged to be a a sample of a much larger set of data, uh, and that's in that sample was a bunch of uh, of O'Day, right? That that Im- impacted uh, equipment from Cisco and Juniper and and others. And as it turned out, you know the the exploits were pretty old, right? The yeah, yeah, they they were pretty aged, at least for the firmware they're targeting the, the firewalls you're going after. Right. But they were highly effective right. against the, the versions. Right. So lots been lots been written and a lot's been said about you know the the equation group and uh, sorry, not the equation group, the um, the shadow broker group and who they might be and you know, is their is their bad English really bad or is it fake bad or you know, but that's kinda neither here nor there. The new news Well, I mean you're an expert on bad English, so Well that's that is true. That's very true. Uh, the the new news here is that the uh, uh, the the shadow broker group has released a bunch of 
uh, I guess it's log data, which purports to be uh, traffic from compromised uh, systems run by the equation group. And the equation group is um, commonly thought to be the NSA, the National Security Agency here in the U.S. And uh, and, and so the, the, the concept behind this breach is if you, uh, in, in some some analysts have picked through it and found, um, you know, the actual IP addresses and ports and whatnot. The idea is that, um, you know, th- this is a, a listing of likely sources of attacks uh, that were perpetrated by the equation group um, sometime between you know, 2001 and 2010, I guess is what, what I, what I read. So it's it's probably not very timely, you know. Certainly, I would hope that the you know, the compromised hosts or alleged compromised hosts in that data set were, were almost certainly turned over since then. Although maybe they're not if they're DVRs, right? Yeah, you know what's what's interesting too is that the top ten affected countries does not include the U.S., which somewhat supports the case that this might have been. Yes, U.S. government nation state action. Right. I mean, it's it's potentially coincidental and circumstantial, but yeah. And by the way, that I think the, the the important thing to understand is that my my read, at least, is that the the list of systems is systems that were compromised and used as part of their command and control infrastructure. So, not right. the actual end target of their operation. And it's it's also interesting because the you know the the original pot of of data, and I think this one too, is alleged to have come from uh, a compromise a system that was compromised by the equation group, and uh, and wasn't properly cleaned up uh, afterwards. So so basically, the equation group compromised some some system out on the internet for whatever reason because it was placed in a in a certain network or, or what have you, and they dropped their kit on it to to spread laterally and it was that kit that whoever the shadow broker group is uh got a hold of and and is now uh trying to sell by the way for the low low price of 10,000 bitcoins and uh so alleged by the way allegedly there's a lot more right there's a lot and, more and just so you know currently the they're up to out of the 10,000 that they're trying to raise the current grand total on the board yeah two two it's only 9,998 Bitcoins to go. Come on, we can do this, people. <laughs> they need a telethon, I Dig think. Dig deep. <laughs> Dig deep. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, and we'll see what more comes of it. There's an interesting possibility here. If you do find out your organization is in this list, wow, what a get-out-of-jail-free card. Look, boss, it was the NSA. What do you want me to do? Well, that's a good. that's a good point. Good point, but you know, I—I I I mean, if you can't get the letter from Kevin Mandia, this is your next best. <laughs> Save your job. True. That's that's true. Um, you know, I, I think it would be interesting if if there were organizations that had um, you know, had firewall logs kicking around for for a long time to be able to look back and see retrospectively if any of this stuff shows up. Uh, but it seems unlikely if it's six years ago. Man, I mean, maybe somebody does, but that's that seems unlikely. Um, it does also make me wonder, you know, let's say something 
much more recent shows up, right? And uh, what what are the uh, I've been I've been thinking about this, right? What would the what would the reporting obligations be if you saw, for instance, you see evidence that a uh, um, you know some kind of quote APT had been in your network? You could see, for instance, uh, you know a ton of of interactive traffic, but because of their you know, stealthy operations. You can actually see what they were doing, but you know, put yourself in the in the shoes of a, maybe a healthcare provider or a a, a retailer or, or something like that. What what is your you, because you can't prove right. that they told that, you know that they took it? Would you not disclose it? Or it's it's a. I think that's a really hard conversation between legal and uh, and the, and the uh, security organization in that circumstance. Yeah, uh, it really depends on your vertical. Really depends on on your regulatory environment. And agreed. I, I I gotta feel there's probably a lot of stuff that doesn't get reported that probably should be. Yeah, yeah. There was a story about that a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah. So uh, moving on to our next story, which comes from uh, ElPasoInc dot com, which I gotta tell you has some of the best stories. Totally. I know. A sec- only only second behind Florida. So uh, the the title here is EPISD, which is the El Paso um, Independent School District, offers some answers in data breach. So um, last, I think it was last April, the uh, the, the school district suffered a, a breach where the uh, the direct deposit for I think it was fifty one um, ISD employees was redirected to banks that an attacker controlled, which is totally awesome. $93,000 was stolen in this attack. Now, the the IT security manager of the ISD was apparently terminated shortly after this episode for unrelated causes. Completely. Totally unrelated. Just another isolated incident. Yeah. Right. He went to spend more time with his family. He had some health issues. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but before he left, he indicated that the, the, the method of attack was apparently really persistent phishing attacks against ISD employees. And uh, again, allegedly, this, um, this phishing campaign was just very, really, really persistent until they collected user IDs and, and passwords to be able to log into a system that allowed uh, th- these attacker or attackers to uh, to, to redirect the um, the direct deposit of, of these fifty one employees. Now, it's not really clear if they if they had captured the fifty one user IDs and passwords, or if they captured one and they used it to you know was this some kind of administrative account. However. What they did say was that normally the ISD does not allow employees to change their own direct deposit elections. You actually have to go through the ISD HR department and prove that you're you. And and by the way, that was done because they had had an internal audit the year before, which apparently showed all sorts of uh, insecure craziness. And so they, they turned that off. But Jerry, I can hear our listeners asking... How did it happen? If it was turned off. So a vendor. A vendor. A vendor who supported the uh, their application 
uh, applied a patch which changed the setting, which allowed their employees to go back and, you guessed it, change their direct deposit elections. Nice. And so, so kind of in the you know in in the spirit of most of these breaches are you know a series of <laughs> of uh, you know unfortunately lined up uh kind of tragedies this is uh you know just another another example where you know lots of opportunity for it to go right well you might call it the air chain yes the air chain yes which is a, a commonly used uh, discussion point in other areas like for instance aviation most aviation accidents occur because of a, a chain of errors or mistakes that if you could have interrupted any one of those would have prevented uh, whatever the incident or tragedy or plane right. crashing into the ground situation might have been. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, in in, uh, in security, it seems like there's there's very few like singular causes. That that makes uh, makes things difficult. Are you, so, are you going to break into song about a singular sensation? No, I'm not. Please? No. We, we've had a request. No. So, um, you know, the, the, the thing that, that I, I thought was really interesting, other than the concept, which I hadn't really heard of before. I mean, which, this was which concept? Of, of people logging in to... Oh, redirecting direct deposit? Yeah. yeah. That was, that was uh, novel. So, you know, keep an eye out for that because... And, um, and how, how annoying would that be, right? Your paycheck doesn't show up? And like your checks start bouncing and you call HR and you're like, Hey, where's my money? And they're like, Hey, we sent it to you. Yeah. And by the way, these are, these are teachers. They're not like the you know, the most highly paid em- employees ever. So um, I- I'm sure it, it created a hardship for them and the school district yeah. ended up having to remunerate them. And of course, a year of, you know, credit monitoring. And, and the credit, credit monitoring, <laughs> the obligatory credit monitoring. That apparently it fixes everything. <laughs> So, I'm so sorry you lost your arm in that tragic mill accident. Here's a free year of credit monitoring. A, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I think the, the the other interesting thing for me was the the persistence of the apparent persistence of the phishing attack. And I think a lot of this is something that's concerned me for a long time, right? We we often talk about well, we just have to detect them, right? And you know. If we can, if we can detect them, we can stop them, and that's fine, until you have someone who just keeps trying, right? And that's right. Detect them and stop them by what? Creating signature for that particular type of fish, right? And I, I think, I guess, my concern is that when I hear a lot of people talk, um, it 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 seems like there's a lot of focus on just detecting it. And then uh, you know blocking them and declaring victory and, and moving on. And I don't. I, I really think that's just fraught with with peril. Well, as this points out, we're clearly getting our ass kicked by fishing. Yeah, right. I mean, I get I get the intuitive response to say detect it and we can take you know action. I've seen it many times in my own organizations where if we know that a phishing campaign has come in, you know, and we can detect it or it's been reported, we could go and remove it from people's inboxes before they have the opportunity to click on it. But that's also again assuming that there's a commonality and a pattern to these phishing attacks. And when we start getting into really persistent uh, or really focused attacks, that could be very low and slow and very unique. Right. And 
we're still struggling, I think, of finding the right balance between user awareness training, technical controls, uh, and, and business process changes to limit the impact. Right. You know, and here, uh, two-factor authentication would have been a good option, possibly. Uh, you know, uh, some sort of verification you know, system of, hey, before we change this direct deposit, you know, we're going to email or mail something to your home address with a, a second authentication something. You know, yeah, you know what, what's what's interesting is most most companies, most employers, and then most most of the uh, the payroll firms that, that outsource, that provide this outsource service, when you change your, your direct deposit elections, you get an email. Yeah, typically. That, that confirms. And so I wonder, you know... And, that, and often physical, at least I typically get also a piece of physical mail. Mind you, that's like a week later. Right. Right. So anyway, and, and I, I think um, typically it's not doesn't take effect automatically right away either. Uh, so I, I don't know what the... They don't, they don't go into any of those circumstances here, but um, anyway, he, heads up on the, the technique. You know, it's kind of a kind of a, a new thing and we we often see copycats right so something to be aware of and, and also i would say just because you caught the fisher in and blocked them and don't assume that you've you've won the battle right because they they may not be moving on to the next target they may just change up their uh you know the, the fish a little bit and move to a different uh you know different uh source source host or, or what have you and, and then try again so uh, moving on to our last story which is also about phishing i thought this one, this one was uh, rather interesting this comes from palo alto labs blog and the title is psa conference invite used as a lure by operation lotus blossom actors so palo alto has a asia pacific cybersecurity conference coming up uh, and what what they had detected or I think they were alerted by an astute recipient that uh, that someone had been this allegedly Lotus Blossom group had been sending uh, malicious emails containing uh, word docs uh, weaponized word docs to uh, to security professionals, you know, and I don't, it's not clear to me if they were all people who are going to be invited to the conference or attending the conference. That, that part wasn't clear to me. Uh, but anyway, the idea, uh, the, the thing I thought was pretty interesting is, is, is relatively targeted at a, you know, a, we've seen similar things like at, uh, targeted at, let's say nuclear physicists and, you know, maybe, uh, foreign relations people and, and government officials, but this one's targeted at cybersecurity people. <laughs> right, which you might think is a bit of a tougher target to crack, but... I don't think it is, really. Maybe not. I, I have a feeling... I, I obviously don't have any metrics to back it up, but I have this feeling that it might not be all that different. Yeah, you're probably right, sadly. But but the emails basically were saying that it was a free invite to the conference. Uh, so So maybe it was... Just kind of scattershot. Uh, well, still, I mean, it, it was going after folks, uh, you know, who likely would go, I would imagine. Maybe, I don't know. True, true. But it was, it was a very well-crafted email, too. It looks pretty pretty solid. Yeah, yep. 
And uh, the, if you were unfortunate enough to open the Word doc, you got this Trojan called the Emissary Emissary Trojan, which was previously used in other uh, APT-style attacks. So I, I don't have a lot of information about what its capabilities are, but um, I would assume it probably does all the, the normal Trojan-type things. Yeah, and it, it appears also to be a downloader to download all sorts of other stuff, too, so... You know, once it's there, it could do almost anything. Yeah. So that was the the last story. So now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about our experiences here at the O'Reilly Security Conference. Yeah. So it's the first time that they've done this. In fact, they they were in New York City. They're doing another one. I think in a week. New York City. New York City. Try this also. Uh, there's another one coming up. I think in a week in Amsterdam. That's right. So we're not we're not going to that one, but. Uh, it's good. I, you know, it, it's truly a defender-focused conference. It's truly meant for kind of the same niche we're in with with our podcast. Uh, not necessarily, you know, people dropping O-days and, you know, being on the sort of the, the black hat and gray hat side. It's really meant for the for the blue team folks. And so uh, we, it kicked off, I guess, really, there was training classes over the weekend, but we, the first real event was the event... Uh, we hosted last night, which was the Ignite event, which we already talked about a little bit, which was Good Times, uh, sponsored by GitHub. Uh, so a little shout out to them for that. And then today we went to a bunch of keynotes, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, one of the keynotes that, that really caught my eye was um, by one guy whose name is suddenly escaping me. I'll look it up here. Uh, he's a well-known writer and, and speaker, and he gave basically this talk about the price, the emotional price of working in the intelligence agencies and sort of paralleling that with how things are for a lot of us doing this job every day and how difficult it can be um, and, and how we are burning out a lot of people and how we are absolutely just destroying people emotionally and mentally. In, right. in, in this line of work. And I think it's true. I think we are absolutely running our people into the ground in this line of work. And, and we're treating everything as the most urgent hair on fire situation when it's really a long-term marathon. And we're not setting our people up to be able to sustain the level of intensity most larger organizations have. Right. They're, they're, not, they're not staffed for it. And, and they're not, you know, I, I really don't think... Most CISOs care. I think that they're, for whatever reason, culturally, we are just driving so hard in our security organizations that we're, we're really just going to continue to burn people out. Yeah, indeed. I, 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 th- I think... Um, Richard, Richard uh, Time is his name, by the way. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. And he, his keynote was uh, Playing Through the Pain, the Impact of Secrets and Dark Knowledge on Security and Intelligence Professionals. Now... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, he, he was a. I'll say he was a very energetic and passionate speaker. I thought it was. Um, it's probably one of the best talks I've seen in a long time. I do think, you know, he he had a lot more material than he had time for, which was very unfortunate um, because I, I would have. I could probably sit there listening to him for another hour, um, but you know, we. I think we had forty minutes with him. Um. I, I can certainly see and 
uh, in myself and in people I work with, a lot of what he was talking about. Now, I, I you know, the context was his his uh, his experiences again has been much more slanted on the you know the military and intelligence angle, but his proposition was that it really transfers over to the security world, right? Where you know we we have to live with. Um, and, and support the decisions, however possibly onerous, of our of our organizations, or or we have to leave. And it's a similar situation in the intelligence agency, right? And there's very few people who, you know, a we can talk about. And and this is really important from a defense perspective, right? Because unlike on the offense side, you know, you go to a, a, any one of the conferences and you'll hear about the exploits of a. You know, of, of pen testers, right? They that's that's they love to talk about it, and they're incentivized to talk about it. Uh, but we can't on the de- defense side. We can't talk about that, right? We're certainly not supposed to. And and the reason we we can't talk about it is because it's it's you know company confidential information. We'll get fired for it. And so who do we who can we talk to, right? We, you know, and and so we end up having this uh, you know this difficult situation, which creates a lot of emotional strain and and i think we all if any of us that have been in the industry for a long time have known um, a number of people who have you know unfortunately committed suicide or are addicted to uh, alcohol or drugs or or you know something else or uh, and, and the other one he pointed out was you know divorce it's very very common too i know you you don't want to bring up my addiction to cat videos i'm working on it Meow. No, it's 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 true, and you, you know, you mentioned something too. You and I have to be very careful on this show ourselves. We both have jobs that we are working deeply in security for large organizations, and we can't really talk about any of that. Although some of the topics are perfect for the show, we have an ethical obligation and a legal obligation to not disclose that information if we want to keep our jobs and also just maintain our level of ethics. and But there are a lot of times that we have to do things, whether it's in our current roles or previous roles, that we don't make the decision. And what we are asked to do or ordered to do may not be in agreement with our ethical and moral compass. Exactly. But you kind of have a choice at that point of either quitting your job or continuing to get a paycheck. And perhaps maybe looking for another job, but I think the longer I've worked in this industry, the longer I've realized that idealistic nature of only doing the right thing is really difficult when you have a family to support and you need that paycheck. Right. Um, And it can get really complex. And then you start rationalizing, well, yeah, I'm not doing the perfect thing, but we're moving the ball forward. And then you tell yourself, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough. And it's right. a, it's very common. I mean, we could do a whole show on how do you deal with being told to do something that isn't necessarily what you believe is the right thing to do in an IT security role. Yeah, and you, you, it's a fine line you have to walk because you're, you know, not not only is your job on the line, right, but your professional reputation is on the line too, which yeah. which is really you know, your next several jobs. And and so on the one hand, you don't want to be the person who 
um, you know, who carried out unethical, uh, you know, uh, directions and, and then have that be found out because that's, that's going to taint you. And then on the, on the other hand, you know, you don't want to be, uh, blabbing about what you, what you see, because even if you're in the right, you know, that you're, you're now tainted with, as a, you know, as somebody who, who can't, who can't keep things under wraps. And then, you know, if, uh, if, if you just silently move around every time, uh, something is uncomfortable, now you're a job hopper and, and also right. unattractive. So it's a, it's a very difficult situation for us. Yeah. We get, we get into this weird feedback loop that we sort of have to end up being morally flexible to move forward. Right. Which sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean we're, we're we're sort of digressing a little bit from the point of his talk because his talk is very powerful and it's you know it's not a woe is me talk but it is a real issue I think as our industry progresses that we've got to figure out a way to balance uh, the, the the emotional demands on our our security folks. Yeah, and I think that, that his point was we we have to we have to take care of ourselves, right? We have to make sure that we take time for ourselves. He pointed out that we should, we should think about things like yoga and exercise and, you know, the whole mindfulness uh, bit, whatever you think about that. Uh, but the point is, you know, we, nobody's going to come around, come around and do that for us. No, in fact, it's usually the opposite. The folks who end up in the CISO roles and the CIO roles are the type A workaholic hard chargers who typically have the expectation of their staff to do the same. Right. And if you, you have this pressure to work more hours and be on call and check your email. And, you know, you think that helps make you successful and it might, but there's always a cost. Indeed. And, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where, where I try really hard to enforce a work life balance. Uh, You know, I've been very stressed out and burnt out in my, in my, in my career and I'm trying hard not to do that again. Um, but there are times, you know, that I can feel my coworkers silently judging me if I leave, you know, on time, <laughs> you know, or, or whatnot. Oh, absolutely. And, um, I, I think as well, because of, of InfoSec, it's a cost center. Businesses are always trying to figure out what's the least amount of staff they can get away with. And so they'll keep the staff to a level where things just barely aren't breaking often. Right. And uh, same same with startup mentality. It's like, it's like being in a startup all the time. When I was at a startup, a couple of startups, we never had enough staff. And so everybody was wearing multiple hats and everything was a crisis and everything was not enough, you know, money available or people available to get it done. And, you know, that's great if there's an exit with equity on the table. And it's a short-term situation, but that's, to me, no way to live a, a career. Well, you know, from a, I mean, just from a business management philosophy it's not it's not great either to run your business solely on heroic efforts because then you're just you know one major illness or parental death or you know right. away from you know kind of ruin in your in the company and and so that's that's not a great place for an employer to be i mean they should it, it surprises me that the companies don't want to have a, a more sustainable uh, view of this, and I, I guess it's because you know maybe they just—I don't think they realize it. I mean, we are the epitome of white-collar worker. We sit yeah. at the computer all day. I don't. I right. don't 
I don't think it's internalized emotionally like uh, you know other jobs would be that would have stress and 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 fatigue and right. emotional wear and tear and uh, I mean I, and I'm sure we're not unique in this. I, I know that. I'm not trying to say that we're oh we're so downtrodden and so you know terrible. I just don't think that our industry is old enough for us to really understand this. I mean, when we really look at it, I mean, you and I have each been doing this over 20 years. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much of a security industry before about when we started. Right. It was very tiny. That's right. Right. So most of the original folks getting a security are now hitting middle age. Yeah. And it's different you know, the, the, your priorities start to shift and your ability to sustain that level of stress and intensity is different at different ages. Right. And desire to strain, to sustain it too. Right. Is, is it, so he, he actually did mention that, which I thought was was interesting that, you know, we, uh, you know, people in our age, I'm past middle age, right? But we're, um, you know, we as we, as we advance through the years, right, we, you know, we not only do we have the work problems which typically only go in one direction which is more difficult uh, we also have our you know health complications and you know all the all the aging related things so it's a, it's a it's something that I, the point was the, the net point was we have to take care of ourselves nobody else is going to do it for us um, you know take care of your your co-workers your colleagues you know and and why not no, no silver bullets i don't think yeah and you know, the problem is still going to be there tomorrow. Right. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So um, so a couple of other talks I went to. One, I don't have the the name in front of me, but it was, uh, um, it, it was, um, oh boy, I'm trying to remember the name. It was uh, uh, one of the, the CDNs uh, gave a, a presentation about their information. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it was called Incident Command, The Far Side of the Edge. There you go. Uh, given by Fastly. Fastly. Yeah, uh-huh. I was never going to get that out of memory. So uh, I, that was really uh, pretty pretty cool. They they walk through their internal kind of structure and high-level view of their processes, um, which which I thought was, was really interesting. They talked about how they have the concept of an incident commander uh, who, who has kind of ultimate responsibility, and then they have... Um, they have this security incident response team who's responsible for more of the investigation. So the incident commander is responsible for like the business. So resumption of service, minimizing impact to them and their customers. And this incident response team is responsible for the investigations and whatnot. Does the commander get to wear a cool hat? I, 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 you know, I didn't ask, but a good question. Maybe a vest. I'm thinking one of those hats with a little spinning light on top. Oh yeah! Yes. Although that might be somewhat distracting. It could be, but um, in they t- they talked about how they have uh, have their their incident commanders and their uh, incident response teams actually reporting through different management chains, right? So they they intentionally create some tension to keep some balance. Uh, some of the other things I thought were really interesting was they do a periodic. Uh, um, review of recent incidents to make sure that you know, the documentation, you know, kind of after the fact documentation is uh, is being completed. 
um, which, you know, tends, especially in the context of incident response, like, you know, we just swing from one vine to another and, and kind of never look back. And then also um, what was, they had this concept of tabletop exercises, right? So, so in a, I've been in a number of companies who have said, you know, we don't need to test our incident response process, right? Because we're constantly responding incidents. And they they had it, and, and you can kind of see the logic in that, but they took a different, slightly different approach and said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to let people be creative and we're going to have them come up with some crazy scenarios. And then we're going to take that scenario, we're going to give it to each of these incident commanders and say, how would you respond to this? And then get together and walk through okay was that a was that a good response well how you know what would be the right way to respond to that incident and so i think it's a, it's an interesting thing to kind of let people take a step back and and kind of do some free thinking which which is you know always useful yeah i love that sort of stuff if you've got the cycles to do it right but i think that's incredible i mean Figuring out your response to a crisis when you're not in a crisis is always going to give you the best outcome. Yeah. I shouldn't yeah. say always. 95% of the time will give you the best outcome because yeah. typically our decision-making capability in the middle of a stressful situation is poor. Um, While you were there, I went and saw um, Jesse Irwin give a talk yes. on uh, Speak Security and Enter. Making security make sense for non-technical users. You know, not a technical talk, but a good talk. And, and really sort of remind us of, of how to speak to muggles, as it were. Um, but, but in, you know, in a very respectful way, too. And, you know, one, one takeaway that I, that I had, and I've, I've seen her give a version of this talk before. But one thing it reminded me of that I wanted to point out was we glorify and spend so much time on really advanced attacks and pocket cases and, and whatnot, the, the 10 percentile attacks, that for non-technical folks, a lot of them just get demoralized about security and give up and make it somebody else's problem because they feel there's there's no win. Yeah, because we, we that. Yeah, we completely demoralize them so they don't even bother doing the basic stuff that would be helpful for 90% of attacks. You know, unique passwords, password managers, patching, um, AV, uh, because they hear stuff like, oh, well, this would have gone right around AV, so AV sucks, and all of our cynical BS that we spew that, you know, gets us uh, uh, research points and, and, you know, catchy named vulnerabilities with theme songs and animals and you know, merchandise stores. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And get us slots to talk at DEF CON. That's the stuff that we have this feedback loop that's rewarding our industry. And it, it's valuable. I get it. But the problem is when the average user hears that stuff, they just kind of throw up their hands and, and some throw up their hands and, and give up. And that's not the message we need to be sending them. Right. So, you know, it's like we're talking about driving at the Indy 500 and and the skill set it takes to sustain that level of, of intensity when really we're not doing a good job of giving advice of how you drive around, you know, your local freeway. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, the other one I, I thought was interesting was uh, a, a talk about high, highly reliable organizations or HROs. And so... Yeah, that that was interesting, though frustrating at the same time because it's like that nirvana you want to reach that is really difficult to get to. Yeah, I, I, and so I think that's the that's a good point. So the the idea here is that 
there are these there's a certain class of organizations like fire departments and i think he he talked about nuclear power plants and and aircraft carriers as as examples of uh, of these highly reliable organizations and you know he, he pointed out that there's been a, there's been some research done to say you know these these organizations and entities have a lot of failure modes and and a lot of a lot more failure modes than the quote average organization and if those failure modes materialize they actually have more severe consequences than the average organization too but when they look at the the track record of these highly reliable organizations they actually fail less than than the you know the average organization and the question was well why does that happen and and so the the talk was about the in at least in in the um in the analysis done by a a particular author some uh, some kind of key differentiators between normal organizations and these highly reliable organizations and you know things like um in uh, valuing failure right rather than rather than uh, the typical organization which he he used the example you know sometimes you have a a a manager or a ceo says you know we will not accept failure we will not tolerate failure and the problem is that you know failure is almost inevitable and all you've done is 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 ensure that people are going to hide it until they can't hide it anymore right he also brought out you know reward people for pointing out problems reward people for uh, pointing out concerns and risks right you know and and it's interesting because and I actually asked him this question and his answer was very telling. Any vulnerability management program that I've personally been a part of in my career, the security folks who are finding vulnerabilities or pen test folks, if they're internal, end up owning the solution as well. They, they own the remediation problem typically. And so if that organization points out a problem that can't be solved in short order, they now have this negative feedback loop in the organization of they are on the hook for solving it. And so now it's sort of bad for them to point out something they can't solve. Right. And, 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 and which is absolutely asinine behavior and completely contrary to what it is you want your risk discovery organizations to be doing. Uh, you know, at the, at the very least, you want to know what those risks are. And then not hold that team accountable to, well, we can't solve that risk right now. So, But in a very real sense, a lot of organizations are like, well, we'd rather not know about the risk because if we know about the risk, then we're, we're, you know, we could be held responsible for not solving it if it comes back to bite us. So anyway, I asked him, well, okay, that's great, but how do you get around that problem of if you want to reward folks for finding things, the culture I've typically seen is, if you find it, you own it for fixing it if you're in the security organization. And his answer was, well, you need to build this sort of mindset into the entire organization where the entire organization is willing to be, in essence, incredibly inefficient to lower risk, right? So when he's talking about a, uh, trying to take this into security, he's talking about the entire organization is focused on risk reduction over business efficiency, because when you look at the, the types of organizations he's, he's, he's talking about, they all have a lot of people involved that are very inefficient to keep things safe. Yeah, very conservative. Right. 
And and the problem that you have is that you've got to get buy off the entire organization that this is your focus. I mean, his concept makes sense if the company is built from the ground up with that culture. It's very difficult to do that in a silo in security. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that is the... The, I think the challenge that a lot of organizations have is on the one hand, they say that they want, they would like to get to that place. But on the other hand, it's it's really unreasonable to think that they would because it means that they're not going to be able to invest in or as much, either invest at all or as much in a new product or expanding into a new market because they have to fund this, you know, uh, somewhat ultra conservative behavior and a lot of and you know it follows by the way that a lot of the the challenges we see are relatively easily solved it's just that you know we as we talked about you know as organizations we kind of live right on the edge yeah most of our problems are solvable problems it's the trade off issue right do you want to devote the resources time energy uh, and and the opportunity cost to solving that problem when you could be doing something else that's that's actually increasing shareholder value Exactly. Um, and then, uh, let's see, we we heard from uh, uh, Mr. Potter, Mr. Bruce Potter, about risk analysis, which was a pretty good talk. I just went to that talk to beg for a ShmooCon ticket. Did it work? No. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you said that ShmooCon sold out in 4.2 seconds today. Well, the first, the first round. The first round, 600 right. tickets, yeah. No, no. It was, it was a good talk, although... Though, interestingly, I, I mean, I sort of, if you haven't done risk management before and you're trying to come up with a, some sort of risk framework, it seemed to make sense to me, but you, you weren't necessarily so keen on it. No, no. It, you know, if you're, it, that is, it, it's true. So so Bruce is, um, you know, Bruce is in support of the NIST framework, which I think Wait, is- Wait, the What? The NIST framework. I'm sorry. Oh my! Oh, How they many did times? Did it again? He did How it again. Many times. I'm old. Leave me alone. So, uh, so you know what? I'm going to get Matlock to do a very special episode <laughs> about. How you pronounce NIST. NIST. Yeah. What if if I see if I see Matlock say it, then it'll be all right. What about the Golden Girls? I I, I never got into them. <laughs> At your age, murder they'd she be wrote. In, murder she wrote. At your know. age, they'd be into you. <laughs> All right, thanks, buddy. <laughs> um, so anyway, can you tell we're tired? Yeah. We've been on go for a while. Yeah, I've been in New York for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, so um, uh, I, I think uh, he, the, the NIST framework is one thing, right? And I have my own separate issues with the NIST framework, but. He he brought up the the NIST eight hundred thirty risk assessment model, and you know the the reality is with that model is actually relatively ambiguous. It it, it proposes some uh, some methodology to quantify risk, but the problem is, and this it, it's it's way longer of a discussion than I can do justice to, but I will tell you, if you want to understand the source of my issue with both the framework and with 800, uh, 830, read the book, The Failure Risk Management by Douglas Hubbard. It's it's a very Not approachable book. Not related to L. Ron Hubbard? 
Not not really. Well, as far as I know, he could. This isn't like the Dianetics for risk management. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. So anyway, it's 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 a very good book. It's very approachable. It's not. What's it called again? One more time. The failure of risk management by Douglas Hubbard. Now, is it talking about risk management in general, or is it specifically IT risk management? It is risk management in general. Although he does talk about IT risk quite often in the book. Okay. And have you received any remuneration for suggesting this particular book? No, mm-hmm. not at all. All right. Not so this is of your own free will. That's right. Okay. Carry on. That's right. So, uh, and then uh, I think that was that was all I had. What about you? Um, you know, I thought Bruce's talk was good. I I thought it was pretty solid. If you hadn't done much with. Uh, he, one, he's a very entertaining speaker, first off. No, no doubt about that. Yeah, yes. I, I, I always enjoy it. And, and Heidi was there, so I waved at her, and she's like, I don't know who you are. I'm like, yeah, we've met. <laughs> she, yeah, she but went, she may... I saw her going for security. Yeah, she, I mean, she, you know, she's known by so many people. She's, you know... Right. She's a couple notches above us in terms of InfoSec, you know, celebrity status. But... Uh, Anyway, I, I thought it was good. I mean, especially if you're, you're trying to get your arms around a situation. It, he's talking about basically figuring out threat models, figuring out risk models, figuring out likelihood, figuring out your assets, and, and then trying to stack rank them to some level of priority so you know what to start working on so you're not trying to eat the elephant you know, from all directions at once. So you know, I, it makes sense at an intuitive level to, to try to get your hands around a really – difficult moving target of, of where do you start if you're coming into an organization, especially let's say you're standing up a, a CISO organization for the first time. I think it makes some sense to, to try to understand the threat models and the, and, the, and the threat actors and the risks involved with the organization and figure out where to, where to start. Well, I, I, there, it's unquestionable that we need, we need to do a better job of assessing risk, right? And, and it, that, that wasn't my, my beef. And I, I think Anything where where is the beef, Jerry? <laughs> Under the pickle. <laughs> okay. Thank you. For for our young listeners, hit YouTube. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, um I think with that we're gonna go and um go go find some uh, some dinner before the purge starts tonight. <laughs> um, we we had one other talk, which was uh, using open source tools to do like malware analysis. Oh yes, and, that's right. Which was pretty interesting. I mean, it was great if if you've not done that kind of work before. It's kind of a list of tools, um, you know how to how to safely analyze a website, how to safely analyze a piece of malware. Um, you know, it's more sort of like an intro level. You know, getting into it. Um, there were some there were some unique things, which I I, I think for any any malware analysis analyst. Probably nothing revolutionary, but you know things. Looking for unusual—I would say not not necessarily unusual, but but non-traditional things like looking for the the name of mutexes that are used by uh, by malware to make sure that uh, you know doesn't keep reinstalling itself, right? And and using that to look up you know in, in virus total rather than the hash because the hash cha- we can change. You know, very often, however, think certain other attributes of the malware, like the mutex, may not. And and not not by the way, not all malware will have a mutex. So you know, your mile, your mileage may vary. <laughs> um, but you know, the point was, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, stuff you can do using you know using a lot of uh, uh, 
publicly available websites like URL Void and MX Tools and Virus Total and and others to um, you know, to, to help identify you know what what are you dealing with in terms of malware is it is it um, you know, is it is it targeted at you is it opportunistic what's it trying to do is it is it new or are other people seeing it and so it was a, it was a good a good basic talk I thought yeah and we've got a whole other day tomorrow of talks so hopefully some other good ones and then you finally get to go home uh, I'm so looking forward to going home I miss my family and my doggies and, and your my kids. kitties and your cats don't forget the kitties yeah my kitties that's right I need, I need the videos I need them I need the videos <laughs> uh, so you know real quick wrap up uh, really enjoying the conference really happy to be here glad that O'Reilly invited us up to to participate and run the Ignite track and now we get to hang out and see all sorts of cool people that's right and thanks uh, thanks again to O'Reilly and um, not that they sponsored us by the way no but, I mean uh, but let's you know, be they, very they fair. invited us here. they invited us and they gave us passes right Right, but that, that you know, we full try dis- to be very, full disclosure. Yeah, we try to be very transparent on that. So anyway, uh, we will talk again probably next week. I hopefully I'll be, we'll be back on a regular schedule. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to find links to the stories we talked about today, I will include them in our show notes. Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at Defensive Sec. You can follow Mister Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. Follow me on Twitter at Malicious Lincoln. And by the way, I assume that you know at some point we'll have to find some new thing because Twitter seems to be, you know, it, having an in, impending implosion. But we'll have to get a young intern to tell us what all the hip kids are doing today. Yeah, like I guess Snapchat and Instagram will be our you know where they'll find us soon. So I'm, I'm waiting for Snapgram. Snapgram, great. Anyway, I mean these things have a half life of what five years now. That's right. that's right thanks a lot for listening and we'll talk again next time have a great week everybody bye bye bye